Thomas Worthlin McConkie was a young teen when he rejected his family's strong ties to the Mormon faith. I needed out. I needed to be really far away from it because I had been so wounded by it. Years later, Thomas had an epiphany. My family is just as hurt as I am and always have been. And it really changed my involvement in the Mormon community and my perspective on it. He began integrating frameworks from his professional life, studying adult development, to his religious life. How would Mormons react to crises of faith, he wondered, if we viewed them through the lens of development, not just as Mormons, but as members of the human family? We would panic less, even get excited about it. I, I feel like it's an evolutionary advance in who we are. I'm Paul Malin, and this is The Mormon Alchemist, a podcast that relies on the best content in progressive Mormonism to produce short, shareable episodes. On this episode, we'll share Gina Colvin's conversation with Thomas Worthen McConkie on the A Thoughtful Faith podcast. You can find the full interview and support Gina's work at athoughtfulfaith.org. Thomas, I have an initial question. What is with your name? Thomas <laughs> Worthen McConkie is the most Mormon name that I have ever heard. Right. Uh, yeah, I don't know if you could pack any more Mormon into it. Joseph B. Worthlin is my grandfather, my mother's father. Bruce R. McConkie is my great uncle, so he's my granddad's older brother. And I have, my parents actually named me after President Thomas Monson because President Monson was close friends with my granddad Worthlin while they were in the quorum for years. So there you have it. <laughs> So, so tell us what it what what it was like for you to grow up with all of that that very public Mormonness around you. For whatever reason, I struggled with it a great deal. I don't know what it was, but I just kind of popped. Like I, I couldn't handle it. I dug my heels in. You were young, weren't you? You were like thirteen when you were first hit with this. I I, I can't do this Mormon thing. Yeah, absolutely. I was thirteen years old when I stopped going to church. And when I say stop, I mean I mean dead stop. I, I wouldn't set foot back in a church. And, you know, there were severe consequences for not going to church. And I, I just couldn't bring myself to do it. There's something about the culture, the family culture, the broader Mormon culture that didn't jibe with me. So I always just felt a deep love for, for Christ and what seemed possible through the tradition. But something about Mormon churches, I, I was just allergic to them for so long. What, was it the expectation, do you think? Do you think perhaps there was so much expectation on you, not just because of your family, but because Mormonism is so filled with expectation? Yeah, totally. As I look back on it, I think, okay, here's a kid who is expressing a certain distaste towards Mormonism, towards Mormon culture, and developmentally, that's kind of right in step, you know, for a lot of people. Like, that's when you start to ask questions and develop that inner skeptic in you. And had my family, had the culture responded differently and kind of supported me in that inquiry, I might have worked through it in a more healthy way, a more productive way, and come into a deeper balance with everything. You know, it was such a big no in terms of, like, of course you're going to church. Of course the church is true. And, you know, naturally when you're in that environment, you got to get curious about, well, what if I'm not going to church and what if the church isn't true? I mean, it's just, it's natural in the developmental process to explore the boundaries. You say that it wasn't long before you discovered other, you know, meditative practices. So what drew you to them? You know, when I got out of the family environment for the first time, I just realized how 
bloodied and bruised I felt from the family conflict. I mean, the family conflict was pretty significant and uh, I just wasn't comfortable in my own skin. And I think it was just in the ether somehow I thought, well, I've heard about meditation and people finding inner peace. I'm going to learn to meditate. And <laughs> it just so happened that the largest Zen Buddhist order outside of Japan and the entire world was four blocks from my college apartment. It's in Salt Lake. It was. It no longer, that particular order kind of dissolved. But when I was there, it was thriving. It was a worldwide organization. And I was getting my meditation on and, you know, kind of exploring the, uh, you know, the inner workings of the mind and the heart. <laughs> what, what was your Mormonism, where was your Mormonism at? Is it something that you were trying to excise from yourself or somewhere, something that you oh, put yeah. elsewhere or what were you doing with it? Absolutely. I, I could not get far enough away from the Mormon church at that time. So it was, it was soothing to be, you know, in a spiritual practice that was distinctly non-Mormon. And it was just a little over a year after getting into Buddhist practice in America that I decided to move to China. I had been so wounded by it. Well, well can you explain what you mean by wounded? You know, when I stopped going to church when I was 13, my family, my community didn't seem to have a way to process it. Like, what do you do with a kid who by, you know, their reckoning is too young to make the decision to leave the church, refuses to come back to church? And then I, I thought that was bad the first six years. And then I, you know, there just wasn't any place to put a 19-year-old Worthland McConkie in the culture who said, I'm not going on a mission, I'm not going back to church. And that's where I just kind of had to disappear myself. I, that's all I knew to do at the time. I just I didn't know what else to do but leave, just go far away and try to erase my identity. So I, I felt deep loss and, and heartbreak, you know, from my relationships and my nuclear family, um, my extended family. Yeah, it was a hard time. In retrospect, what, do you think it was a healthy thing for you to do to leave? I think the way I grew up and left the church was far from ideal. Far from ideal. I mean, I, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. And yet that's, that's how it shook out. My, my hope is that in starting to talk about this and kind of uh, illuminate the map, the territory of development that, you know, when other families have a 13-year-old that says, you know, I don't know if I believe any of this, that they can kind of identify that as a certain developmental marker and say, okay, all right, let's, let's look into that, you know, and make some space, you know, to explore so what was unhelpful? I want to talk about what was unhelpful at that time for you. What was really, what were the, the triggers that were really driving you out in, in such an aggressive way to try and just excise the whole of Mormonism from you? One thing that comes immediately to mind is uh, somewhat of an irony, but the issue of agency, right? Like I was, here I was exercising my agency not to go to church and I was, I was totally bewildered by the response of my family. I mean, genuinely at the time, I knew the decision wouldn't be popular at that age, but that, like, that, it, that it unleashed the reaction it did. I just thought, wait a minute. Like, I mean, I was perceptive enough at that age to realize like, okay, if, if this is how people react when I don't go to church, does that mean that they kept going to the going to church when they were my age for the same reason, simply because, you know, they were afraid of the wrath of their parents. And, and what does that mean if, you know, our faith is, is a compulsory thing? I just, I felt totally claustrophobic. 
Yeah, yeah. And you talked about your grandfather saying something that was important to you. My granddad, Worthlin, who was in the quorum at the time, um, called me into his office one day just to, just to chat and to hang out. And, you know, he just said, I believe you have a mission. He wasn't saying it, you know, in a way that I'm special or, you know, more important than anyone else. He was saying it as someone might say it through the eyes of the divine, like, you know, you're, you have a purpose as we all do. And maybe people around here don't see that, but I'm telling you that I see it. And that just, that meant the world to me. What a it gracious really, thing to say. What a gracious oh, it, and beautiful it, thing to it, say. It, it saved my life. Mm. You know, it saved my life and it, um, it, it changed the tone of the conversation and the family. Thomas Worthen McConkie sharing his restless journey away from Mormonism with Gina Colvin on A Thoughtful Faith podcast. This is The Mormon Alchemist. Hi, I'm Stephen Carter, the editor of Sunstone Magazine. Like you, I'm addicted to blogs and podcasts that explore Mormon themes, but I also want to be with people, the kind who are as curious about history, theology, and culture as I am. That's why I've been going to Sunstone Symposiums for more than a decade now. I want to explore new ideas. I want to see Mormonism from other perspectives. And, I'll admit it, I want to have lunch with my Mormon studies heroes. Visit sunstone.org to learn more about our symposiums and magazine. Come join us. It's good to be together. Welcome back to The Mormon Alchemist. Thomas Worthland McConkie's book, Navigating Mormon Faith Crisis, comes after years of struggle against his inherited identity. Gina Cloven asked him to describe how he turned back to engage with his family and with the Mormon church in his own way. It was when I was about 27 years old. It's like this insight, this epiphany whacked me over the head that like, I had been so focused on putting my life back together, putting myself back together with this broken heart of this kid who missed his rite of passage in the McConkie family and wasn't recognized in the culture back home. And, um, you know, it was when I was 27 that I realized, like, my family is just as hurt as I am and always have been. And that compassion just broke me open to, wow, there's, there's an entire community here that doesn't know how to handle this. And it, it really changed my involvement in the Mormon community and my perspective on it. It is interesting, isn't it, the development of our faith life? Because I was thinking the other day, it's the only, the, what we choose to believe is the only thing that's really ours. It's the only thing that's really ours. And it doesn't belong to anybody else. So that the freedom to actually build a faith life that feels authentic, it feels like it's ours, we feel really present with it. The scope to do that seems for a lot of people very limited in the church where there's this constant pressure to believe for the sake of the tribe mm. rather than believe for the sake of the self. Yeah, but what you're pointing to I think is such an important topic in Mormonism right now because in previous generations, you know, we're this beleaguered people you know, making their way across the plains and trying to eke out an existence and preserve the faith. And the, the institution needed a certain kind of loyalty. There needed to be uh, a priority given to, you know, the collective identity. A long time later, here in the year 2015, you see a real shift towards 
uh, individuality, individual expression of faith and how people actually tailor it to themselves to make it personal, to align with their individual values. And that's, that's a major change. That has an impact on theology. That has an impact on uh, the Mormon community. And I, it's really my position that if we understood the basic movement and rhythms, the patterns of development better, we would panic less as we see the shift and be able to lean into it a little bit more and even get excited about it. I, I feel like it's an evolutionary advance in who we are. So your thesis then would be that um, as we become more engaged or we understand um, adult faith development and its natural iterations and you know, stages, the mm. natural fact, and we honor that, the community will change as well? Absolutely. I mean, really, what is the community but a collective of individuals expressing their faith, right? So any faith, any realization you have or development you have in your faith, Gina, that automatically translates into and reverberates through the collective. One of the areas of frustration, uh, as people f feel more empowerment in terms of their own authentic spiritual natures, is it doesn't seem to communicate. There's a ceiling between grassroots Mormonism and what's sort of taking place within the community. You know, the, the feeling is that yeah. regardless of what's happening individually within our communities, that doesn't seem to be translating to a different kind of practice above the, you know, the, the ceiling, the hierarchical ceiling. You know, it's still all male. It's the quorum's still white, um, you know, and, yeah. and Utah. And, and it feels so out of pace yeah. with the stretching and growing that's going on in our communities. Yeah, no, I, I, I hear that. To put it simply, um, the, the church culture right now, you know, what we call Mormon culture, that is not necessarily displaying all of our, you know, all of the capacities we have as individuals, but it takes time. There's a certain lag in translating individual realizations, insights, um, revelations even into the collective whole. And I think there's an inherent frustration with it as well, not just in the Mormon church, but in whenever we get together and try to codify and institutionalize anything. And, and I feel the pain too. Um, I'm sensitive to that in the church. And I, I think I'm all, I tend to be more optimistic about it. Um, I, I feel like we're moving the needle and I think we're moving along. One of the, the, the headings in your book is called Messy is the New Clean. Do you want to talk about <laughs> yeah. that? When I say messy, I mean that there's less stigma around the whole spectrum of human life. You know, it used to be if you go back 50 years, you know, mom is home in her apron and dad and his perfectly coiffed hair gets back from work at five. And, you know, there was a certain range of behavior that was presentable and considered decent, um, you know, just a few decades ago. And now all of a sudden um, people are writing blogs about their you know, the hot mess of their personal lives. And we get juice out of that. We like that because it makes us feel more human. It makes us feel like, oh, it, it normalizes the challenges of being human. And so I just see as a, you know, an evolution in our culture, this ability to be more transparent about the ups and the downs, like the, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And my, my experience is that when we belong to a group that can really allow for that mess, 
it's soothing to us. You know, we can relax. We can let our belly hang out a little bit and say, like, you know, this is me, my warts and all. And it's nice to be able to share that with people so I don't have to spend so much energy pretending like things are going better than they are. It's an energetic tax to present a certain facade to a community. And I think our generation is tuning into that more and recognizing that we, we want to abolish that tax. And, you know, a word that comes up to kind of summarize it as authenticity. Can we be more authentic together? Because that's actually, that tends to be a more pleasant way to be in a community. It's interesting that you say that, particularly that you identified this particular moment in time, a very postmodern moment, you know, lots of contestation, conflict, irony, paradox, etc. Mm, yeah. One thing I've, I've noticed is that there are a number of people who have come back to Mormonism uh-huh. at this messy moment, and you're one of them. Mm. So what drew you back? This is the mystic in me speaking now. And by mystic, I say, like, I'm someone who's interested in, like, direct experience with the divine, contact with that ultimate mystery. And I find an incredible poetry, an incredible framework and a language and a tradition within Mormonism through which incredible power flows. The same way I'm speaking English right now fluently, not struggling for words because I'm a native speaker, I find a nativity in Mormonism. It's not to say that, you know, I I don't think Mormonism will necessarily be appropriate for everybody in this lifetime. But for me, I find a real native expression in the tradition and incredible power. And I'm interested in reanimating all of, you know, what was downloaded into me before I was 10 years old. It, it's incredible. I, it's a real spiritual practice for me, and I'm, I'm excited about it. So how did you get to that stage? I joke with people that I, I actually, <laughs> I was converted through Buddhism. I, I entered Mormonism through the back door of Buddhism. It was in, it was in my meditation practice over the years that something deeply Mormon in me just arose out of that. I think it'll be different for different people. Other people might leave the church out of deep uh, Buddhist experience. It was a very specific moment in my life where I was, it was kind of almost cliche that I was, you know, on the misty mountaintops of a, you know, uh, in some monastery with my Zen teacher. And I had just this moment of profound stillness. And I wept and There was no content to the experience. I didn't know what it meant, but I I found myself within weeks for the first time in 20 years, like going to church again. I feel a real identity in Mormonism, and I I feel it's a tradition that empowers people and and grows people up and, and does it better and better over the years, notwithstanding its limitations and challenges. And that's, that is the, the, the epitome of the, the mystical experience, a complete reorientation, isn't it? Like it's, totally, you know, yeah. I think we're talking about the same thing that the Dalai Lama was speaking of when he encouraged people to please go back to your traditions. The way I understand that simple injunction is that we need to integrate like any aspect of ourselves that we haven't brought back into a sense of wholeness and healing, that remains to be integrated. And, you know, people who... Uh, let's say uh, people who leave Mormonism and end up lifelong Buddhists, I'm not saying that's the wrong path. I would suggest that there's a huge opportunity in um, what I said a moment ago, reanimating, reclaiming, and you know, reinterpreting what Mormonism can mean to us now. So it's this opportunity to continually 
reintegrate more and more of ourselves until eventually we've integrated all of it. Okay, okay. You need to talk me through this. Coming back to church, when I was about 16, I had an extraordinary experience where it was absolutely, it just shot through me. A complete reorientation, there was clarity, and I felt called to Mormonism. Okay, now the problem now is that (laughs) I'm troubled, you know, on on a bad day. Okay, on a bad day, I'm really troubled by it because... My continued adherence to the faith, as much as I love it and feel called to it, feels like an affirmation of the status quo, which I'm unhappy about. Totally. I, so for me, I'm, I'm new at this whole speaking in public about my outlandish Mormon views thing. <laughs> so I'm not sure what I can say or can't, but I'll, I'll just say it. Like the response that brings up in me when you say that is that I, I find it unfortunate that people who have genuine struggles and questions, they, they perceive, I think rightly in a lot of cases, that there's not an environment, it's not a friendly environment where they can work that out in community. What if there were? What if like you're ba- on your bad day, you're dying to go to church because you have 50 friends there who will give you insight into what you're working with and help you engage it more honestly. I, I celebrate your bad days and your struggles. And I, I feel a real loss when you, Gina, can't come to church and be messy with me because I feel there's a deep intelligence in that messiness. Like you're not just having a bad day and struggling with the status quo because you're willful or you're errant, you're struggling with it because something in you says, you know what, we could do better, I could do better. And I, I really hope for a community where we can make room for that process of development and, and respond to that intelligence and to honor it and to integrate it. I mean, to me, that's growth. And I, I believe our community really is committed to growth at the end of the day. I think that's the whole point. A Thoughtful Faith is a podcast and thriving Facebook community of intelligent, thoughtful believers working to maintain a deep connection to Mormonism in spite of its challenging policies and doctrine. Find a supportive, believing community at athoughtfulfaith.org. You'll pick up the conversation with Thomas Wortham McConkie as he and Gina Colvin describe stages of adult development applied to our own Mormon journeys. Let's go to your book and talk to us to begin with about adult development because there's there's lots of money to be made in child and youth you know adolescent development you know yeah. but but I mean I'm starting to think oh adult development most people stop thinking about adult development because you know or, or we have the brakes on any concept of adult development because suddenly we become adults and we've arrived that's right isn't it crazy to me it's so interesting and not a coincidence that the field of neuroscience was starting to notice hey wait a minute we've been talking about a static unchanging adult brain and you know that's just the research doesn't bear that out it looks like adult brains are changing at about the same time late 60s early 70s psychologists were saying wait a minute, we've been saying that there are stages of childhood and adolescence, and then you arrive at adulthood. And, and then researchers came along in the late 60s and said, wait a minute, you know, like we're seeing new kinds of data that don't fit into this framework. It looks like there are adult stages of development. So it's fascinating to me about 
you know, bringing development to bear on any discipline. Right now we're talking about Mormonism, about the development of faith. We could be talking about public education. We could be talking about public policy. I mean, the way we construct the world, the way we as adults see the world informs how we make meaning, how we act, how we respond in relationship. It, it, it creates its own world that we respond to as though it were real. And adult development shows us that every world we live in is real and it's, it's also giving way to another world, right? So it, it has some real implications on, well, what is reality then if, if it's always changing on me? Mm. Okay, so tell us about how we evolve or we develop as adults. Yeah, let me, let me just start by saying that we do. It's not a question anymore like, huh, are these really stages? Do adults really develop? I mean, we are developing, we're growing. And one of the ramifications of that is that when different stages and different orientations try to communicate with one another, there can often be a lot lost in translation. I mean, before we have any grasp of adult development, we're, we're inclined to dismiss people as stupid or crazy or uh, uninformed. And when we really start to look at the patterns of development, we, we start to see the integrity of people's views. We start to see the coherence. And all of a sudden, somebody who is just like unthinkably dull and slow, and how could they possibly think that? It's like, whoa, there, there's actually an elegance. And so I'm hopeful that development becomes you know, more a part of our day-to-day -day language and the way we understand each other in the church because it, it allows for so much compassion and understanding with one another. I think this is huge yeah. because I think, you know, if, you, if, we, if we think about that idea in terms of Mormon maturation or the development of our faith lives through Mormonism as a, as a, a faith system, we pack a heck of a lot uh, into the first couple of decades and we get people attached to the church in the, the first couple of decades. We get them um, testifying of the church and recruiting for the church in the first couple of decades and then marrying in the first couple of decades and making commitments, yep. profound covenants and commitments. Yes. And then you're saying we actually continue to develop. Yes. And it seems to me that those commitments that are made at such an early stage in our lives might be prevent in some ways a natural maturation because we don't want to be disloyal to all of those commitments that we made before. We want to yeah. stay the same. The way I see it in developmental terms, somebody who, as, I, as far as I see it, I left the church 20 years ago. I, I didn't make any of those commitments that you refer to, Gene. I don't have any social ties in the church. I'm, I'm making new friends right now. So it would have been easy enough for me to stay in China and do my Buddhist thing and gain enlightenment, and that would have been fun. But I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful because the church is young, and I think our developmental curriculum up to a certain point is really gorgeous right now. I mean, when we look at childhood development, um, I think kids learn incredibly healthy structures and patterns in the church, and I see an opportunity to extend those patterns into adulthood. So that rather than developmental tension, rather than a sense of shame that what used to work, what we promised would work our whole lives that no longer works anymore, rather than the intense guilt we feel for breaking those vows, we actually just take the next step. And the Mormon culture, the Mormon church can potentially be a place that supports our development and carries us along, facilitates that. It, it could happen. I, I would even say it is happening. Okay. I want to push you on this because one of yeah. the reasons... Uh, that I ask this is because people 
who are going through a faith crisis are often accused by family members of changing. Like you've changed. You never used to be this way. What has happened to you? And if if you're talking about adult development, the answer is I grew up. (laughs) That's right. That's that's right. I, I think people believe that the loyalty that they developed into and internalized at a certain phase in their growth, that that's the end game. You stop at obedience and loyalty. And I, I think people, well-meaning, they, they look at other people who are kind of, you know, hesitantly moving beyond that and say, hey, man, what, what gives you promised? Like you, you said you'd be here for life. And if we just understood that there was actual, there was, you know, terra firma, beneath our feet and we could actually move beyond and we could do so in a way where we spiritually thrive individually and collectively, I think we'd go there. Why wouldn't we go there? Um, (laughs) You know, as as we grow up in the church, though, it seems to be that we're required to have um, an unquestioning attachment to leaders and to Mm -hmm. their words, to their many, many, many words and to the programs of the church and to all of these structures and discourses Mm -hmm. and discursive sort of things to keep us within the fold. That represents a a very specific range in human development, one that can potentially be very uh, healthy and help us grow. Um, You know, I, I refer to it as the expert phase in the book where we we really orient towards expertise. We want to know what's true. And in order to learn what's true, we refer to resources. Um, that could be the scriptures. That could be general conference talks. We refer to those as authoritative and having expertise. And the, the experts themselves, you know, the general authorities. And that's, that's a beautiful way to grow. We all need to grow through that stage. We all need to internalize that. What comes at the next stage that I really elaborate on in the book is uh, I refer to it as the achiever stage. This is where we really start to come into our own. This is where we become authorities uh, unto ourselves. And that it doesn't mean we divorce ourselves from you know, church authorities, but it means that you know, to really investigate ourselves, get clear on what's, what really matters to us, what is spiritual food to us and what isn't. And the achiever goes through an intense process that can last years, decades, of, of really creating a relationship you know, with the church that is meaningful to them. We can look for guidance from you know, the tribal elders, but at the end of the day, the difference between an, an achiever and an expert is that the achiever has an inner authority. Like If it doesn't work with them, if it doesn't align with their values, they can leave it. They can leave it behind. Whereas before that stage, uh, there tends to be more of a pressure, a felt sense of needing to just swallow it whole. Take it all, do everything, do everything twice, right? Do it 110%. That's kind of the feeling of being in that expert phase and prior. But in an achiever, and what you're pointing to is that we, we really start to come into a different kind of relationship with authority, with truth, with, with what matters to us. Is there a wrestle in that stage as we discover our inner authority? Um, is, is that... Um, I want to say violent, but is it, is it like a, a dangerous phase in our lives? You know, can it, can it be filled with tension and conflict? Oh, absolutely. Uh, people can perceive it as just laziness, right? Uh, moral laxity. 
And from it can and it can be that too. Sometimes they're right. Sometimes we are just lazy and we're looking for shortcuts. But what I want to bring to the conversation is the possibility that what if people really mean well? What if we had good faith and just said this person is deepening? They are growing. They're worthy of our respect, our honor. You know, they're they're part of the community that we need to support. That's powerful. That's really powerful. Um, I. We we skipped over a stage, you know, so we're talking about stages of development. Uh, we skipped over the early stage, which is uh, the diplomat, um, or the essence of the diplomat is obedience. That's right. And and if I <laughs> threw that out to my progressive Mormon community, they'd go, "Well, that's just what it is now." Uh-huh. You describe diplomat as our, our central preoccupation and primary motivation is to harmonise with the collective we belong to and fit in. Yeah. Um, but I, I suppose one of the frustrations that it, it, it feels like that is what the church has sort of stopped at. So if somebody is like moving on to the expert or the achiever stage or the individualist stage, stage they do that against the, the dominant culture, which seems to be at the diplomat stage. Is, or is yeah. that really unkind? I think you said it fine there. I, bet. Um, I think we see a concentration of you know, like diplomat characteristics, you know, in a given church meeting. It it doesn't mean for a minute that people aren't capable of expressing well beyond that stage of development. And, you know, development is messy, right? Like to feel challenged by expressing a certain range of development at a Mormon church isn't different than feeling challenged to express another range at the office, Right? Or, or in your own family. And I look around, you know, I've been out of the game a long time and I'm coming back and, you know, I've had my eyes as wide open as I can keep them the last few years, you know, at church. And I see all sorts of evidence of later stage development trying to make its way in, in really exciting ways. And I, I believe it's a matter of time before we learn to integrate them in healthy ways. And we'll see a whole new kind of community in, you know, 10 years, 50 years, 100 years, but not, not, if people like you who have real questions, real juicy, beautiful questions, if people like you, like me, go away and take them to new communities, then we end up with a narrower range of development and human expression within the community. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So my hope is that people bring their mess um, in a respectful way, engage the community, live into it, and help shape this growing church. Okay. Okay. Now I'm 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 being really self conscious here because I know that I, what I keep trying to do is get you to to tell us what stage the church is at, and and say, look, it's an absolute mess. Um, <laughs> sure. Which I'm starting to think maybe a little bit more might be really unkind of me or ungracious of me, because what you're suggesting is that it's actually much more complex than that. It might feel that way. It's much more complex than that. And maybe if we want people to give us the benefit of the doubt, mm. then we ought to give other people the benefit of the doubt. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's a great way to say it. And I, I don't think there's anything unfair or unproductive even about looking at our you know community our church culture and saying hey we seem to be kind of in lockstep in a in a diplomat fashion you know to put it in developmental terms and then to ask the question is that is everyone cool with that hey like are, is this what you want because um, i don't know how comfortable i am with this like to, that that's what's beautiful about development too the, the moment we get insights into it we can look at our behavior and say is this working for me and if it's not can we make collective agreements on a new way to be and the answer is yes we can the moment we're aware 
of our own developmental patterns, we can question them and, you know, invite uh, more liberating habits into our communal lives. Okay, so I just want to move something out of the way before we talk about the next stages. Sure. And, and that is that is truth claims. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so for a lot of people that is um, that is the pivot. That's where everything is is centered and whether or not the church is true. That's such a strong cultural trajectory uh-huh. that everything outside of that sometimes feels really problematized, even saying, actually, you know, I will choose to believe a certain range of these truth claims, not all of them. That feels really problematic for people. We're very, very tied down to this idea of knowledge. So help me work through this. How can I navigate that? Um, You know, I I grew up in that church where it's an either or proposition, either the true or either the church is true or it's not true. If it is true, you're on the hook for a bunch of stuff because you believe it's true. If it's not true, well, that's a different road you go down. And like you pointed to, I think really articulately just now, um, it's not off, it's not always the preferred framework, right? Some people just don't respond to that either or proposition. I feel like our task as an LDS community is to integrate that. How do we make genuine room for somebody who identifies as a Mormon, who wants to be a part of the conversation, the community, and that's genuinely the way they feel. They don't want to talk about, is it true or not? Can we make room for that? I I really hope we can, because I'm really enlivened by your faith inquiry when you put it that way. And it would be a loss if we couldn't express it that way at church. The temptation is always when we develop, when we move into more complexity and we look back and say, oh man, are we still talking about obedience? And there's, there's a genuine annoyance or allergy to, like, why do we have to keep talking about that? I don't, I don't get anything out of that anymore. The challenge is to make room for even that, right? Because just like we were there at one point, there are other people who are there right now, and that is how they're growing. And so, you know, to me, development, it's a science, but it's also an art to, to really engage our own process compassionately and, you know, have the honesty to just you know, pursue what kind of nourishment we need to grow and to really allow for other people the same process, you know, to not get impatient with how other people insist that the church be. And, you know, for people who insist that I be in a certain relationship with the church, um, I'm doing my best on a personal level to help that go away. You know, even for the people who insist that I'm a certain way, I'm even trying to make room for them to be able to tell me I'm doing it wrong. That's how inclusive I want to be, and it's hard. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's beautiful. It's really idealistic, um, which is, I, you I know. know that, I, well, I'll, I'll challenge you on that. It, okay. it idealistic, and um, <laughs> I don't see another way forward, right? I, I think it's eminently practical to look at our community and the development of our faith this way. No, I'm feeling really challenged. I will admit that I'm feeling really challenged. And I'm, and I'm feeling the challenge that other people are going to be feeling as they're listening to this. Because it yeah. is actually a bit of a call to more graciousness. You're challenging, challenging me to be more forgiving. And myself. Right? And everyone else. I mean, that's the thing about development. We're all on the hook. We don't develop to some stage and get to look down on our, all the poor you know, peons who haven't made it past Achiever yet. Right? And that's always tempting, right? Because 
you know, as humans, we love new frameworks that suggest that we're superior <laughs> to our neighbor. We all love those. But development just doesn't give us a place to stand. We don't have a leg to stand on. We're all little babies. We're all infants in development. And, and it's hard to grow up and it's hard to grow down and it's hard to be a human. But we can do it. And at the end of the day, what you're saying, I think we all feel when we're really honest about development, it's like, oh yeah, like it's about just letting people be who they are, be as they are, and just really loving them through that process. You're listening to The Mormon Alchemist. This is Paul Malin. I started this project to help spread the best ideas in progressive Mormonism. You can keep in touch and contribute your ideas at mormonalchemist.com. In this episode, Gina Colvin has been talking with Thomas Wortham McConkie about his promising book, Navigating Mormon Faith Crisis, and the challenging idea that progress in the church depends on development within each of us. Okay, so we've got diplomat, which the essences obey, the expert stage, the essences to defend, the achiever stage, the essence is choosing, the development of personal agency, um, and patience. Okay, so... And, and what you're suggesting is that we kind of cycle through all of these stages. We revisit one, you know, parts of different stages as we go along. T- tell yeah. us about the individualist stage. Oh, the individualist stage is fascinating. I mean, it, it's, it's pluralism. It's multiple perspectives bearing their own unique truths and therefore destabilizing the narrative around absolute truths. And that, that's complicated because, you know, the first thing people say, I think, especially in Mormon culture, like, wait a minute, are you saying truth doesn't exist? Absolutely not. But it complicates it, right? Like truth absolutely exists. And my ability to approach it is limited because I'm a man and I can't have the same human experience as a woman. I'm an English, I'm an English speaker. I don't know how people philosophize in Turkish. I was born in the United States. What are my political sensibilities if I was raised in China? We, we just naturally develop an awareness that, okay, I can know what I know, but I can't know what you can know, so let's talk. Let, let's talk about what we both know, and then truth becomes dialogical. Rather than something we proclaim, we arrive at and say this is true, truth becomes dialogical, where we talk about it, and we arrive at fuller and fuller truths by including more and more perspectives. Okay. What would that look like in the church? Well, I, I think we see examples of it, but the achiever, this is the stage that, become, that comes before the individualist. The achiever is good at thriving within a given system as is. The individualist steps out of the system and says, well, I don't know about this system. And it asks a you know, terribly vexing question that you know, unseats everything. And you see that in Mormonism right now. Mm-hmm. And my question would be, how do you do that graciously? We need to develop our capacities as individualists, which, which are gorgeous. I mean, these stages, the, the gifts that come online as we grow into these stages, they're all so beautiful. And the challenge remains, how do we really, you know, extend that graciousness towards the stages that might tend to irk us? And, you know, I think we're all learning how to do that each day. Okay, an individualist is actually processing all of that. Yeah. But how do they do that with graciousness you know to me that's that's the genius of community right the fact that if we're sensitive if our if our hearts are open we show up on a given sunday and even as we feel a, a need to just 
like raise the hierarchy to the ground and say like we gotta like set the thing on fire there's our conscience pricks us and says oh yeah and that person sitting next to me their life hangs on this right they they don't want to burn it to the ground this is their home so how do i express my own development and how do i express kindness towards their development simultaneously and that's the tension that's the holding that goes on that's so hard that is the practice that brings us into real charity Okay, okay. Now, this, this is where mindfulness and meditation is really important, isn't it? So, I mean, I'm, I'm serious, though. I mean, there needs to be some kind of spiritual practice to help us be more gracious. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's where I spend most of my time. I'm looking at applications, like how do we actually engage people individually, in groups, to grow into this stuff? How do we become development? Now, how do we understand it? Understanding development helps get the ball rolling, but then we have to actually fill out the stages with our own lives. And that's, that's a beautiful process, and there are ways to do it, and we know, we know a lot about it, and there's a lot we don't know. Mm. Okay, let's talk about the strategist stage, which is the integration tr- stage. A thought that I keep coming back to is Fowler's stages of faith. And sometimes in, in talking with people about stages of faith, and I do this to trap people, you know, I'll admit, you know, sure. maybe I want to explain to them that you're just a stage three person. Sure. <laughs> but now, you know, after after this conversation, you know that you are also, by definition, a stage three person. You might have a stage four and five and six in you, but you've also got a stage three in you. I know, right? I know, right? That's just you're not suggesting that this is not an identity that you kind of grab hold of or you you bludgeon someone over the head with. Right. It's uh it's an opportunity to a deeper service, deeper kindness, right? If, if we can really understand, you know, someone's stage of development or much more accurately, the range of stages, because people don't just sit in a stage. They, they, they have a whole spectrum and the way they are at church is different than they are with their families or behind closed doors with their intimate partner or at work, you know, like we, we really do have a range of stages, but if we can tune into people and, you know, we learn to be gentle with them and really, you know, provide a nice space for them to just happen in. And that's a gorgeous thing. And um, that, the strategist starts to get good at that, actually. You know, it's the strategist stage where we realize, oh, like people are developing. Development is real. It matters. And the way I talk to this person has to be different than the way I talk to this other person if I'm really going to be kind. Mm. So uh, it's, it's really rather liberating when I think about it. It kind of frees us from these very strict binaries of either you, know, you get it or you don't get it. But in terms of our personal growth. Yeah, it's important to me right now because I'm a, I don't know what I am. I'm some kind of rogue, like freshened from the wilderness, wild-eyed, you know, just coming down from the misty mountaintops. And I'm saying, okay, I'm a Mormon. Yep, I'm a Mormon because I say I am. And I, I'm looking at the, you know, the cultural like divides within Mormonism, maybe believing Mormons is, you know, the word to use. And then others who are, you know, you know, they have different relationships with it. But a major developmental challenge and opportunity I see is for the people holding Mormonism with more complexity than maybe they were raised with. These people, their potential 
leaders, their potential servants of the culture, they, they can help integrate the earlier stages in their own being, in their own individuality, and, you know, bring a, a deeper wisdom to the tradition itself and create a more compassionate space for everybody to practice in. You know, it's so comfortable to say, oh, those people are less developed than we are. The hard part is that, you know, when we really look at development, we, we realize, oh, if I can't genuinely love these people for being where they are, it means I've got more development to do. So I'm hearing like a higher call to self, like a call to higher self. I hear that too. Yeah, totally. It is a tough time in Mormonism, a really, mm. really tough time. And people yeah. are, are hurting deeply. You've weaved you've, yeah. this through, but tell us about what you hope. I hope for a Zion society. You know, I, I don't even know what that means, right? But, but I hope for it. I, I hope that we continually discover new ways to be human together and to just grow wildly and to just, it, you know, like suck the marrow out of this life, like Henry David Thoreau said, you know, to just truly engage our lives as they are, you know, in, their, in all of their messiness and all of their orderliness and that we, we develop a language as a faith community and an awareness as a faith community to deeply honor the sacredness of that unfolding and that becoming. Mm. Round this out by talking about, I mean, your journey back into Mormonism has been over several years. Mm -hmm. What has happened for you spiritually as you've re-engaged? Mm. Let, me, let me just be with that for a moment because it's a... Uh, yeah, it's been a beautiful experience. I didn't realize how important it was to be whole until I really accepted this part of me, right? Um, you know, so much wounding, so much heartbreak with my family that like something really broke in me at an early age. And I've, coming back, I have the experience of really just pouring love and acceptance over that child who was so hurt. Um, so much tension and anger that came up in adolescence around, I can't believe Mormons actually see the world this way and treat me this way. And processing through all of that and just, you know, arriving again right where I began at the, the beauty and the love and the power that flows through this tradition, that flows through the world traditions, right? And I, I feel a depth of wholeness, you know, just being in this spiritual practice, being in Mormonism than I've ever felt. And so I would just say for those who are listening, for those who have a similar inquiry around how on earth do I integrate a religion, a way of life, an identity that creates so much tension in me, I would, I would just say that the opportunity to be whole, to be holy, to love more than you thought you could love and include more than you thought you could include. That, that's all there. I believe that there's an opportunity in coming back in a way that's not there if we go off and join another church or join no church. Not that that's not a perfectly acceptable thing to do. I understand um, maybe better than most that people don't want to come back and they have good reasons for not. But for those who are called to it, there are incredible gifts in just holding all of ourselves, you know, what's been wounded, what's been defiled, our loss of innocence, and actually finding the beauty, uh, the seeds of growth within that hurt and that heartbreak. You're pushing a lot of buttons here, Thomas. 
Thank you. Thomas Wortham McConkie's book is called Navigating Mormon Faith Crisis. Learn more at mormonstages.com. Listen to the full interview and support Gina Colvin's work at athoughtfulfaith.org. You've been listening to The Mormon Alchemist. Come say hello at mormonalchemist.com.